0: Our scripture comes from Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, 8b through 12, and 16 through 18. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And because the gracious hand of God, my God, was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Haranite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the kid had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. This is God's word. Please remain standing while we join in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for sending us a a wonderful leader to help read the word and to understand it, Lord. Plant it deep in our hearts that it might grow forth lots of fruit that we can glorify you always, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Okay, so before I start, just explaining the word of God and before we hear some application about it um, in our lives. I just want to remind everyone that um, that David um, Aruda is, is um, um, well, he is our worship leader, but he just felt the call of God to, um, to take on a, a position of a youth leader, youth pastor, basically, that, that type of role um, at his home church. And we're just so excited for him. And basically what that's going to look like, he'll probably be in and out a little bit um, for the next week or two, uh, or, or, the, or the next month rather, and um, we're, we'll see him again. But we just love him a lot, and we're just so happy that he's following the Lord's call. It's not always easy to, to discern that or to know what that is, but David is such a great man of God, and we just love him so much, and um, he's served our church well for the past two years. Um, he started with us. He's been our worship leader for, for since we've begun, and we're just so happy um, to call him a friend, to call him a brother in Christ, and we're also happy to see him following the Lord Jesus Christ and obeying his direction and leading in his life. So I'm just going to pray for him really quick, if he can come up here. I don't think I told him I was doing this. So. Um, but um, just after church, just um, give him a hug, tell him you love him, and just encourage him, and we'll see him again, of course, too. So, All right, so um, God, we just thank you so much for David's life. We thank you, Lord, for how you've brought him um, into our lives as the body of Christ to encourage us through your word. Um, we thank you, Lord, that he loves you, and we thank you that he follows you, we thank you, Lord, that um, you've, you've um, allowed us the favor of being able to serve Jesus Christ with him um, for these past two years in a very unique way. And we just anticipate um, working with him in the future, maybe in a different way, but we just love him and um, look forward to see, seeing what the future holds. So just bless him, anoint his ministry, give him great faith and holiness, and I pray, Lord, that he would lead your people well in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Thank you. All right, so I won't preach to 7 o'clock at night. <laughs> I know there's a game on. <laughs> um, we're in the book of Nehemiah, and I want to recall um, just um, the, the central figure of our narrative is Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer to the king, and did you know that he was the shortest cupbearer of his day? Because he was knee high. I, I, <laughs> I, I had to say it once. I won't say it again. (laughs) Mandy told me, don't do it, Kyle. (laughs) Listen to my wife. Okay, the central figure of our narrative is Nehemiah. He's cupbearer to to the Persian king, the most powerful man on earth at the time. It's a position basically second only to the king himself. Oftentimes that was the case. So upon hearing some news, we, we learned this last week, he heard some news that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. His home... Not only his home, but the kingdom of Christ, the name and fame of the Lord of heaven and earth, Yahweh, was in shambles. So Nehemiah wept and he prayed for months. The broken down walls of Jerusalem represented so much more than a city, an earthly city. They represented their possible extinction, calling into question whether or not God had abandoned his promise to them. Have you ever been through something in life where you wondered, has God abandoned his promise? where your faith is shaken. But not only this, these were the, the broken down walls were the consequences of their own disobedience to God as his people because scripture had promised, had said in Deuter- Deuteronomy 28, that if your hearts turn from me, then coming judgment would happen. The, so this left the people of God and therefore the fame of God, at least in the eyes of the nations, in chapter 1, verse 3, in great trouble and shame in great trouble and shame. But as we saw in Nehemiah's prayer last week, God always keeps his covenant and steadfast love. Oh, isn't that a great word for us to remember when it doesn't seem like he's keeping his promise to us? But he does. He is, quote, fundamentally disposed to keeping his promises. And what is his promise in Genesis chapter 12? What would israel have need needed to be reminded of at the time when they looked down at their broken down city they would have need to remember that god had promised abraham in genesis chapter 12 to make the children of abraham a great nation and to bring through that nation a promised savior and king through his seed so they should know because that king had not come yet that god had not abandoned them because god is faithful to his promise Every generation of God's people from Abraham to Nehemiah to us today has the promised guarantee that God will build his kingdom through his people when they humble themselves and worship him only. When we stop doing that, that's when the mess happens. That's when the the walls start breaking down. The principle is not bound to any era in human in biblical history. God's people are to love him and to keep his commandments, chapter 1 of Nehemiah, verse 5. And consequently, his kingdom walls will be built around each of our hearts and around each other and in this world. But disobedience will disrupt our personal peace and joy with Christ, the community's peace and joy with Christ and the community's influence in the world. Do you remember Exodus chapter 33? The promise of love... What is the promise of love-motivated obedience? It's glorious. This is to Moses in Exodus 33. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders. Never before done in any nation, in all the world... The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. The awesome and wondrous works of God will be put on display for the world to see when God's kingdom wall is around our heart. That's what happens. That's the promise guarantee. It will occur. But apathetic disinterest leading to disobedience brings a curse, and subsequent irrelevance. You wanna be irrelevant as as a Christian ministry? The subsequent irrelevance in the world foreseen in Deuteronomy 28. And that was the, the sad state of Israel in Nehemiah's day. The walls were broken down, the people were scattered, and here was the great trauma. They were under the consequential curse of disobedience bringing trouble and shame. The Lord's glorious power was no longer radiating through them. On display for people who are not yet Christians to see that glorious power. And couldn't that be said to be the sad state of many churches today, maybe even the American church in general, that we're lacking the radiating glorious power of God We're really good at kind of fixing things and organizing teams. But when it comes to the presence of God and the holiness of God in prayer and the meditation of God in his word, we fall far short. But the solution is simple. You say, wow, that's trouble. (laughs) That's That's a problem, isn't it? The solution is simple, though. Turn back to God as God's people. Repent of our apathy, of our sin. Repent of our drifting, of our flagrant disregard for God's word. Repent that our Bibles are dusty. Repent that our knees aren't worn. And that our prayers are sparse. And you know we will see the glorious restoration of God's power in this world, in our hearts, first and then in this world. Gordon McConville, wonderful commentator, says this, Though Israel has sinned repeatedly, now, hear, hear this. This is important. Have you sinned repeatedly? <laughs> I have. <laughs> Though Israel has sinned repeatedly, the Lord, for his children at least, the Lord is always willing to restore her to a rich, living relationship with, his, with himself when she repents and recognizes that it depends upon a loving and therefore obedient response to the Redeemer. Always will, God is always willing to bring us back. Amen? Wow. Doesn't matter how far we've drifted, how far we've fallen, we can all get up, wipe the dust off because of the blood of Christ, and come back. Our challenge as God's people is to be renewed and inspired to what is the unifying vision of God's purpose. We need to come alive to it again. What, and we talked about this last week what makes us weep? What makes us pray? Is it the fallen walls of God's kingdom? Or is it some other potential problem that you might be enduring? What's our chief concern? Our challenge as God's people today is to be renewed and inspired to this unifying vision of God's purpose. And we need to expect opposition. When that becomes your chief concern, expect opposition. Isn't that good news? <laughs> The good news is there's, we have a great defense. But we need to expect opposition. When you start taking the kingdom of God seriously, when you get his vision and you say, I'm following that, I'm abandoning my own personal aspirations and visions, and I'm following Christ as king, expect opposition. It comes. And how many people who have been Christians for a while know that that's true? I think we know. Expect opposition. The challenge is to expect it. And this is the heart and theme of chapter 2 in Nehemiah. And we find it right in verse 10. You see, let me read it again. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. You see, the, the, the minute that we rise up and begin to promote the welfare of God's kingdom, people, someone, something, will become very much disturbed. God's singular purpose in all the Bible is to establish his kingdom. Did you know this? In your heart, his kingdom rule in your heart. His kingdom rule in the community of his people. And his kingdom rule in all the earth. That is his purpose in the Bible. That's the singular vision that God has for his creation. To establish his kingdom in our hearts, in his people, and in this world. And when we promote the welfare of God's people, it means that we're promoting the welfare of God's kingdom. You see? And when God's kingdom is advancing, wouldn't you know that what is heightened is a conflict between good and evil? When God's kingdom is advancing... What is heightened is a conflict of good and evil. That means we got to fight. That means there's an enemy. That means there's opposition. And we have to have the tools, the resources, to know how to stand up against them when they come. Paul, uh, p- put God's purpose before your desire. Now what just, let's just do a test. Begin to put God's kingdom before your desires, before your emotions. Exalt his name and his word and watch what happens. You're going to get resisted. God's enemies always attempt to interrupt what is the singular purpose of God, and we see it no more clearly right here in in Nehemiah chapter two. When Nehemiah becomes chiefly concerned about the kingdom of God and actually starts to do something about it, then Satan and his emissaries rise up immediately. They get busy to stop him. We see the immediate conflict of good and evil in chapter two. Now you might have missed this in your, Eng- in your English translations of the Bible, but there is a contrast of good and evil. There are two Hebrew words that are used over and over again in Nehemiah chapter 2. Tov, which means good, and ra, which means evil. Okay? Tov is butting a- up against ra, evil. Okay? Good and evil is in conflict. Nehemiah's face is sad. You remember when we read that? His face was sad. Well, the, the word in Hebrew for sad is evil. It's ra. There's more, than, more going on here than just a, 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 a sadness of heart, see? So Nehemiah's face is sad, and this is in verses 6 and 7, yet it pleased the king to help him. You remember this? Pleased is tov, good, good evil, see? The people of Israel and the city were in trouble, yet be, they began the good work. They were in trouble, ra, evil, yet they began the good work, tov, good work, verses 17 and 18, It displeased them, Sanballat and Tobiah in verse 10, evil, ra, it displeased them that one had come for the welfare, the good, the tov of God's people. You see this conflict happening. Good, evil, good, evil, good, evil. And that is because we have an enemy. And when God's good purposes to build his kingdom come, then the, the enemy immediately rises up. Shouldn't we know this as Christians? Shouldn't we have seen this by now? Maybe you've never heard this in scripture, this conflict, but in your experience, if you've been a Christian any length of time, I'm sure that you're like, oh, okay, I see. Underlining, uh, this is another great quote, underlining the, the action in this chapter is the conflict of good and evil. Everything that serves the interests of the returned exiles, The king's decision, right? That's serving the good purpose. The rebuilding of the walls, this is all good, quote, Tov. All that tends towards their loss, the broken walls, Nehemiah's face, and all of this, the aspirations of Sanballat and Tobiah, is evil. And that should remind us, friends, that any opposition to the building of God's kingdom in your heart and in his people is spiritual opposition. It's the enemy, it's the invisible war, it's the invisible enemy. The opposition might, be, ap- might appear to be physical, but Paul in Ephesians 6, quote, what, what said, locates in it the heavenly places and names the real antagonists of God's people as the spiritual hosts of wickedness. The outward forms of such opposition vary from age to age. So, in other words, they can look like different things from age to, ha- to age, yet it is war, and the only recourse of the people of God is to take up. The armor. And that's what we see here happening in Nehemiah 2. Rise up and build. Take up the armor. And very quickly, I want to look at three sources of opposition to Jesus' reign in your heart. These are the things that are going to come after you when you start wanting to follow Christ. Okay? The kingdom walls. Remember, we're talking about spiritual kingdom in your heart. Three three sources of opposition to Jesus' reign in your heart and in his people. And then I want to look at, really, this is going to be very gloomy for a little while. Get ready, for, ready for some gloom? Okay, gloom and doom. But at the end, it gets good. So just stay awake and follow me, okay? So there are three sources of opposition, of conflict here. They are internal, me, right? Personal resistance in my brain. How many people know that one, right? Then there's team conflict, us, the us conflict. Then there's the opponent, the outside conflict you see so personal resistance the internal the me then then the then there's corporate resistance team and then there's the outside the out the opponent let's so let's look at these real quick personal resistance nehemiah's face is sad and the king says you have a problem with your heart." isn't that interesting the king knows they're all drinking wine they're all happy and this guy is a wet blanket What's going on with him? And he knows right away something is broken in his heart. Nehemiah's face is sad. Any time we resist God's good purpose and will for our lives, it's always going to crush us, and it is always going to break down our walls. See, you're always going to have. If you're a believer in Jesus, and I, if if I understand the Bible at all, when you do that, you're not happy you are not happy, Pappy. You're not a happy Christian. You're miserable. You wear it, and you know it. Your walls are broken down. And it leaves you in despair. It's likely that, you know, was, is that what was happening? Can't we just kind of grieve like a wickedness happening in the world like Jesus did with Lazarus? Is that really what's happening with Nehemiah? It's likely that, that, that possibly that's actually not what's happening with Nehemiah. I think it, it might be more of a, a righteous grief. But I think that we can see in this um, something that we can't skip over and we can't miss. Because it's often the case that our sadness of heart over the condition of the church, over our distance from God... Um, over any way we see God's kingdom seemingly stalled, that sad, there's a difference between a grief over something that's evil that's happening, but a grief that debilitates us. You see what I mean? A grief that stalls us, prevents us from rising up and building. You see, our sadness of heart oftentimes convinces us that nothing is going to work out for the good in this situation, so we don't do anything about it. And I think many of us have known being in a place like that in our lives, The internal struggle, the Christian, oftentimes for the Christian, new life just seems hopeless, either because we think that God just won't provide it, or because we're not worthy of it. Something, our hearts are crushed. But doesn't the psalmist say in Psalm 81, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open up wide your mouths and I will fill it. You see, when our our hearts are crushed, when we think everything is hopeless, it's debilitating our action to work for Christ, to repent of our sin, and to rise up and build. We need to remember that God is faithful and that he will fill up our mouths. It seems to me that the first step to building the kingdom in our lives is internally resisted for several reasons, and let me explain them. First is idolatry. We are internally resisting the kingdom of God being built in our lives because, first, idolatry. And what do I mean by this? We disobey, oftentimes we disregard God's word because we think that we're going to gain from that disregarding a more perfect and personal emotional need from something else. See what I mean? So in other words, something outside of what I know to be God's will for my life actually will provide for me something better. It's, it's, the, it's the sin of Adam and Eve. Did God say you will not die? You will surely not die. You will know just like God knows. So every, every time we decide to disobey the Lord and his word, it's because we think God's a liar. We think that we can get more companionship, more affection, more self-worth, more self-esteem out of, of anything else but God himself. And that's why it, what leads our hearts to sin. That the name and fame of God is somehow a lesser objective than our own, leisure, our own leisure, our own affirmation, our own applause. So idolatry. We wrestle with this. We have these other things in our hearts and our minds that we desperately want, and we seek everything but God to fill them. See? So the walls come crumbling down. Or how about this one? Insecurity. We feel we're not up to the task. Someone's smarter. Someone's smarter. Someone cleaner, someone younger, someone stronger. We have this this sense of let them go rise up and build. Because I just don't have it in me to take on the task of building the kingdom of God and my life and others. So we're insecure. Or how about this one, guilt. I don't feel like I'm worthy of the task. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through, what I'm going through. This is a consequence of my own sin, isn't its it? Well, friends, did you know that the broken down walls for for the Jews, for the Israelites, was a consequence of their own sin? But God was willing to forgive them that they could step up and continue the work in spite of what they had done? Amen. Praise God for that, because if it weren't for that, all of us would be out of here. We'd be all gone. This despairing of heart can strip our faith, leave us without hope, and convince us that the Lord's life is a past tense. The life we once had in Christ is something I'll never get back. This was not Nehemiah. Nehemiah may have been tempted to to feel these emotions of insecurity or guilt or shame, but when he remembered, getting a little ahead of myself now, but when he remembered the promise of God, the graciousness of Christ, that the life that was available to him was still available He got up and he built. So there's that internal personal struggle, but then there is the team struggle, the corporate struggle. How many people know that it's not enough to get your soul right with Jesus Christ, but you need the team to be right? You need the people of God, in other words, to have the same kind of life and courage. And isn't it true that oftentimes, even though the Lord Jesus might be personally giving us great new life, the church might be a mess? And dysfunctional. And all sorts of things might be going on that need correction. And isn't it amazing that somehow Nehemiah inspired the nation of Israel to repent of their sin and to build the kingdom. But there is an internal and corporate resistance, a team problem. The people of Israel and the city were in trouble. We saw that, verses 17 and 18. There's that good and evil again. Not only did Nehemiah have to deal personally with his own feelings of insecurity, guilt, and, and external opposition. But the people as a whole needed to complete this project. He needed them. He couldn't do it alone. They were equally demoralized, equally deflated, and equally discouraged. And oftentimes that's the sad condition of the church. We have all experienced some great life in Christ when we were 22 years old and now it's just gone and boring. And that's how we feel some problem has occurred where it's interrupted what we think was the Holy Spirit's power and we can never have it back. That is a lie from Satan. That is a lie. And you know what? If you keep believing that lie, it, it actually will be a self-fulfilled prophecy. But when we start realizing that that's not the promise of God and we stop believing that the lie narrative that Satan tells us, God does amazing. Remember Moses? I will do amazing things that the world will be in, completely in shock that are happening. Not only did he so he had to deal with this internal systemic problem within the people of God itself, and as do we. They were the ones, they were the ones, I just mentioned this, they were the ones whose sin had brought this to begin with. They had had worshipped other idols, they had forgotten the law, they had turned from Yahweh, and the walls came crumbling down. They were the ones who caused this in the first place. They were the ones who had to contend with local hostilities, lack of resources, lack of support. So Nehemiah not only needed to revive his faith in God, but Israel corporately needed to repent and trust in God to complete this magnificent task. And friends, if we're going to build the kingdom of Christ, we need to do the same. We know the city and the temple, I'm talking about Jerusalem now. The city and the temple were destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. This is some of the setting, the context. This is the corporate, the, the corporate sh- discouragement that they were all experiencing together, right? The, that the story, the shameful story of Israel. 586 BC, the nations destroyed. The, the, the walls are destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and all the ha- inhabitants of the city are exiled into, Bab- into Babylon. Okay? We also know that a Persian rise to power allowed the Jews, there's some hope for them, to return and re- rebuild the temple, which they did. And this is in the book of Ezra. But the city walls and the city itself remained in shambles. Consider also the same people, this is something you might miss and might not know about the history here, the same people had already attempted to rebuild the walls 13 years prior before Nehemiah showed up. Artaxerxes, the same exact king that Nehemiah was sad in the presence of, shut it down. So, so just imagine this, the most powerful person on earth, Nehemiah's got to go up to him and say, hey you know that, that, that project that you shut down? Can you start it up again? <laughs> you know back then you could be smushed under his big foot for, for even suggesting it. So, but here's the problem Thirteen years prior, uh, uh, in Ezra chapter 4, the Israelites are accused of defiance towards Persia. They say they want to rebuild the walls because they're defying against you, king. Artaxerxes Artaxerxes believes it and decrees the project be stopped. So here is a group of people who have tried and failed, and Nehemiah shows up. Talk about a lack of morale. We caused this... And we tried it, and it didn't work. <laughs> and isn't it true that over time, after many defeats, you just sort of lose heart and give up? You, just, you might stay with Christ, kind of. You sit in the back. You just kind of coast in, and you say, I know I need to kind of do something with Jesus, you know, so I'll, I'll, I won't leave it entirely, but, but there's just something dead inside of me now. And that's what happened, that was, there was this corporate gloom that existed over the hearts and minds of the Israelites. They had to contend <clears throat> with subsequent feelings of guilt because of the curse of their own sin. And what's more, they had to contend with feelings of insecurity, which, which no doubt resulted from their own failed attempts at rebuilding. There was a corporate cloud, a shared gloom that existed in the, in the team. See? See the problem? So Nehemiah, the team, but there's a third resistance, an external resistance. An outside resistance. It displeased them, in verse 10, Tobiah, right, in um, Sanballat. It displeased them. These were not part of um, the Jewish nation. It displeased them that one had come for the welfare of God's people. So not only do we have to contend with our own personal resistance, the corporate resistance, but there is an enemy outside that is t- trying to stop the work of God. There were three different prominent figures that were highly displeased with the fact that Nehemiah was in Jerusalem to proclaim the name and fame of Yahweh by rebuilding the walls. Three prominent antagonists show up. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Geshem shows up a little bit later on in the book. These were basically influential governors, people of power, not just kind of complainers. That's how A lot of times that's kind of what I thought of them. Reading the book of Nehemiah, just kind of think of, hey, you can't do it. You're not, it's not going to work. You know, just people discouraging you. It, It was that, but it was so much more. These guys had power. Basically, influential governors from from cu- countries surrounding Jerusalem that did not want to see Jerusalem built up and be strong again, much like today. You know, we don't want certain cities in the Middle East or wherever in Europe to have great power because that will affect the other countries around it. But make no mistake, this wasn't just a political concern. They, the, the, the scriptures make clear that there was an evil, there was a, an evil resistance against the people of God. Okay, Hatred toward the nation of Israel itself and here's that Trinitarian opposition anyone seeking to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind will face. It is in you, personally. It is in us together. And it is in the atmosphere around us. Right? The power of the devil and his emissaries. External. It's the strategy of the evil one to oppose any of us from being captivated by God's kingdom purpose. When? When? was the last time you were truly captivated by Jesus Christ? Can you name the things that have come up in your life that have resisted it? These are the strategy of the evil one to keep us from a great passion and love for Christ. Being captivated by his purpose turning to him in repentant faith, rising up and building the kingdom of God. As sure, as sure as the nose of my face, you all can see it, right? As sure as the nose of my face, if you determine to follow Christ, the kingdom of darkness will be very much disturbed. And how did Nehemiah resist this opposition? What do we do? The Bible says that you can crush Satan under your feet. So what do you do? How do you do it? How do you get out of the gloom of your own internal misery? How do you shake up um, and provide hope to the people of God who have seen the devastation of their own sin and of the opposition that comes upon them? How do you do this? Well, let's talk about it. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) The first thing is that we need faith in and rehearsal of The promises of God. If one thing you see Nehemiah doing in chapters 1 and chapters 2, chapters 1 and 2, he is rehearsing the word of God. What has God said? What has God said? He says in verse 18, this is his his uh basically his speech to the discouraged Israelites, he says, I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. See, so you might not see this here, but what was the gracious hand? Why was God gracious to Nehemiah? Well, we got to look to Nehemiah chapter one to remember. This is what he's telling the, the people of Israel in chapter one, verse eight. He's speaking to God. Nehemiah is praying to God, and he says, "Remember the instruction that you gave your servant Moses." He's saying, "God, can you remember your promise?" What's he? Well, God doesn't forget His promise. What is he doing? He's, he, he's remembering God's promise. Nehemiah is getting back to it so that his face wouldn't be sad, that the faces of Israel wouldn't be sad, that they would take up the task to rise up and build. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them. Oh, and what a great promise we see buried in that for the Christian life today. Friends, no matter how far you have gone to the ends of the earth in rebellion towards God because of maybe some tragedy, when you turn back to him, if you return to me and obey my commands, I will gather all the scattered people from the ends of the earth. You see, God's going to rebuild you, in other words. The, moment you, the promise of God to you is the moment you cry it to God in repentant faith is that he will rebuild you, period. You see, do you believe it or not? Because if you believe it, come and get it. It's not too late. Nehemiah's vision and courage was sourced first in the promise of God and second in his humble pursuit of God in prayer. He said, God, your word says this, I am a sinner and I'm returning to you, period. And that's what happened. Nehemiah knew that he could not complete the task if he had not repented. Which is why the story of Nehemiah is not simply just about a rebuilding project. But it's, it's about a spiritual revival in his heart and in the nation of Israel. That's what Nehemiah is about. It's not about leadership tactics to get a job done. We see that in Nehemiah too, and I think that's very interesting to just kind of make practical observations. But the reality is this is spiritual revival, and that's why I'm preaching through this book. I'm not preaching through this because we want to knock some walls down or we want, you know, that's, that has nothing. I'm preaching through this because I want your walls up, you see, your hearts to be surrounded by the king of kings and lord of lords. I want you to stand up again, rise up and build ourselves, the kingdom of God in our hearts, you see. You see, we're the temple. The Old Testament, the temple, God showed up in the temple, a physical place. But in the New Testament, the Bible says you're the temple. The people of God, the church of God is the temple of Christ. And we need to exalt the king in our kingdom, right? Amen? Amen. And that comes by repentance and obedience. And if you've drifted from him, we all have. But I got good news. Stand up, cry out to Christ, and he will gather you back. Period. Amen. Wow. So here we go. He reminded himself of the promises of God, that promise of God guarantees success to anyone seeking Christ the king. Nehemiah founded his vision and established his courage on the unchanging promise of God. And if you want to have new life in Christ, remember the promise of God. Rehearse it. Notice when the king asked what he wanted, he wasn't bound up in bouts of insecurity. Remember the king said, what do you want Nehemiah? He says, oh okay, let me go back and rebuild the walls. How many people would have said that? Like I would have said, well can you get someone smart and strong to go back and build the walls? Because I can't do it. Right? He, it had nothing to do with his own perception of his ability to do it because he said the gracious hand of my God was on me. It had everything to do with the promise of God. God said he'd do it Nehemiah believed it, even though he didn't, might not have seen himself as very capable. See, he wasn't bound up in bouts of insecurity. He said, let me go rebuild the walls. He believed, he believed he could do it, not because of some masterful leadership prowess, but because of the Lord's promise. And we have the Lord's promise, church. We have it. Second, he had a good plan. Okay? Okay? It wasn't just rehearsing a promise, he had a good plan. We resist opposition by um, repentance and faith in the gospel, re- re- rehearsing the promise in other words, but also by having a good plan. Though Nehemiah knew that only God can do the thing, it didn't prevent him from shrewd planning. Okay? He knew how to be respectful to address the king, didn't he? Did you see that? He knew how to address the king respectfully. He knew when to ask him. You notice that the king was kind of partying. He was happy. Right? He didn't approach him on a bad day. <laughs> he knew when to ask him. He knew how to ask him. Um, every, co- every commentary I've read, they, they make the same observation. They, they say um, that it's important to notice that Nehemiah never once said the name of the city Jerusalem. The city of my fathers. My, my city. Right? And why did he do that? Well... The same king 13 years ago just shut down the project in Jerusalem. So he was making it emotional. He was making it personal. He wasn't saying, you made the wrong call. This is an injustice. He was saying, my father's city lies in ruin. He could, You see, the king could connect with that. So he was being shrewd. He was being wise. He knew how long it would take him. We didn't read the entire text. You notice that we skipped over some things. But if you read that text, he knew how long it ta- would take him. He knew what materials he would need to do the project, and he knew that he would need the king's letters to cut through red, political red tape. We saw some of that in our reading. He also did a reconnaissance around the city for three days and didn't tell anyone what he was doing to assess the project. So he was a prayer-er, he was a prayerer, but he was a planner too. A prayer and a planner, I can just say it like that. <laughs> And this, no doubt, boosted the morale of his deflated workforce and of himself. God was giving him wisdom so he could see how it was actually um, something he was able to do, you see? But not only that, not only um, did he have a good promise and a good plan, but he had a good mission. And this is so important for us to resist the enemy. The good mission, to rise up and build. This is sort of related to the good promise, but it's a little different. Though, Though Nehemiah had a plan... He didn't motivate his people with how, how we're going to do it type of stuff. You know, with math and with inventory and all this. You see, the, this is what he says. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. You see, don't miss this because when he says when we're in disgrace, the kingdom of God is in disgrace. God had promised his kingdom be built through the people of, of Israel that would lead to the Messiah. See, this was not about them. This was about the name and fame of God, the, of the God that they served. So they had a good mission. I also told them that the gracious hand of my God on me, excuse me, about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us rebuild. They had a shared mission. They started to realize that it was no longer acceptable that the, the condition of the people of God, of the, of the church in their day, was the way that it was. It was unacceptable. He gave them a vision of a renewed city, of a, tr- of a people of God, a church that worshipped Jesus Christ, that turned back to him, one that radiates the power of God to all watching. And friends, that's the mission I pitched to you. Do you want that? Can you go after it with me? There is a great answer to all negativity in opposition. The vision of God's glorious kingdom reigning in our lives. Don't you want that? That's the vision. God's glorious kingdom reigning. You're no longer a slave to some sin that you haven't kicked in 15 years. You don't have to be. You don't have to. The the, the church doesn't need to be constantly fighting. We can forgive. We can confess. We can be transparent. We can work out problems. We can solve them. Not because we're smart, but because we have the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And there's the greatest answer to all of the opposition that we face, the pro- assured by the divine promise of God. Promised promise to us even after we failed, promised to us in our inability, promised to us even in the midst of opposition. So, friends, we need to rise up and we need to build. We need to weep over the sad condition of our hearts, over the, uh, over the church, but then we need to cry out to God, remind ourselves of his promise, and then get going, and then get building. We can do it. Rise up and build. Build up the broken down walls of God's will and purpose in your life. You can do it, friend. I'm going to repeat the, the famous words of Winston Churchill. You guys probably know this. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. What is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Remember this? Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of the terror. Victory no matter how long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight. And friend, there we go. That's it. We need to fight. The kingdom of God is our treasure. And we need to defend it. That's our job as the church. Let's get defending each person in this room needs to do that on an individual level, on an individual basis. What do you do at home, in your closet, when no one sees? And then we need to do it together. And when we do that, that's what Moses said in Exodus 33. The world will be in awe. That's the power that we have access to. Amen? Let's pray. God, I ask you, Lord, that this morning... Um, that you would inspire us to a new vision, that we would share that vision, to have Christ reign as king in our hearts. God, I pray, Lord, if there's a person here tonight that doesn't know Jesus, and this all kind of makes maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense, friend, I want to ask you to come to the king of, of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. Would you put your repentant faith in Jesus Christ? Would you understand that your greatest joy, your greatest hope, your greatest affirmation, your greatest applause, your greatest approval, is found not in um, some kind of worldly effort or not some goal accomplished, but it's found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God gives you all of that, not because you've cleaned up your life or straightened things out, but because Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Christianity is news. It is not advice. It's news. It's not advice. It's not a moral... um, it's not, it's not a moral working out of your own righteousness. It's news. Jesus Christ lived the righteous life you should have lived. And when you put repentant faith in him, he forgives all your sin. That all of the wrath of God is put on Jesus at the cross and the resurrected life that he lives now will be yours. So can I ask you this moment, turn from your sin confess them to Jesus Christ and trust him and you'll become part of his glorious kingdom that will never end Oh God how we love you we thank you so much renew us rebuild us and I pray Lord that we would follow you faithfully in Jesus name amen because okay, so we're going-